Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 152nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And Denise, it is October. Yay! Woohoo! And we are going to come into October with a pretty heavy location, the Tower of London. And this location was suggested by Bob Sherfield. Just the mention of it usually brings a chill to the spine. And the reason why is because this is known as the Bloody Tower. A lot of people were imprisoned here. A lot of people were killed here. And now a lot of people haunt here. So we're going to bring that to you in just a moment. Before we get into talking about the Tower of London, we'd love to direct you to our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some email, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We talked about the first half of our road trip to the Carolinas on a previous episode, but we weren't able to talk about the second half. We want to just chat a little bit about that. We went up through the Outer Banks, and then we worked our way over to Asheville, which we absolutely love that location. Denise, the Outer Banks was really neat. It was very cool. We had a fantastic campsite right on the ocean. We could listen to the waves and look at them. There was nothing obstructing our view. It was beautiful. Yeah, that was over on Hatteras and we drove up to Kitty Hawk and got to see where the first flight took place. That was very neat. Very, very cool. And we saw four different lighthouses on that same day, which was really neat as well. Yeah, Denise has a lighthouse book that she gets stamps in, so she got lots of stamps that day. Yes, I did. Then we worked our way over to Asheville, and before we got there, we stopped in Statesville. But even before that, we had one of those things that seems to happen on everybody's road trips. A little bit of a bump in the road, (laughs) and it wasn't a ghost. Bump in the road, it was more like a day of heck. We blew a tire on the camper. So that was a lot of fun. Denise safely got us over to the side of the road. Ladies who are still in high school, if you listen to this podcast, the number one class that you can take when you were in high school, I don't know if they still offer it, automotive maintenance. It was a great class that I took. I use it a lot to this day. And so I knew how to change tires. I've changed tires many times. So it was not a big deal for us to do this, but there wasn't a lot of pull-off area. So thankfully a cop pulled up and I was about half done. So he didn't really need to help us with changing the tire, but we did need some help to make sure that I didn't become a ghost because I got sideswiped by a car. Exactly. I was trying to direct traffic and they just kept looking at me like, weirdo, get out of the road. Then he said, you'll probably be able to get another tire in the next city because obviously you don't want to go anywhere without a spare. Murphy's Law. And he also made the little comment of, you know, once one goes, the other one's going to go. So we went to the next city and nobody had our size tire. And then we went 
we did a side trip, which we weren't exactly expecting up to Raleigh to see if we could get a tire up there. They didn't have that tire anywhere. So we're driving into Statesville and I happen to see on the side of the road, there's a banner there and there's a bunch of campers I could see behind it. And it says that it specializes in trailer tires. And I said, Denise, there's a place. Thank goodness for phones nowadays. I just put in like, this is the exit. This is what I think this place is. And it popped up the name of the place so that we could call them. The next day, we were able to get three new tires because they didn't have the size we needed, but they had a comparable size. So we had to change out all the tires. And then we were back on board, went over to Asheville. And I have to tell you, I didn't know what to expect when it came to Asheville. What a wonderful city full of history. Yes, it was by far one of my favorite cities that we've been to. I mean, there's a lot that I love, like St. Augustine will always probably be one of my number ones, but Asheville's really high up on my list as well. And I definitely want to go back there someday. Yeah, you probably want to do the hippie drum circle they do in the middle of town. Well, we missed it but that would be kind of cool. <laughs> well, we did walk past it. And I went, oh boy, there's some hippie stuff for Denise. And I'm all like, I like the vibe of this city. It's really awesome. <laughs> well, it was really cool. We got to meet up with some of our spectacular crew members for dinner. We got to see Tammy and her husband, Brian, again, which was nice. We met them at the Haunted America conference. Mm-hmm. It was really great seeing them again. Uh, Stephen Pappas joined us. And actually, before we did that, we went to the Biltmore. Yes. How could I forget? <laughs> I, I know. I was about to say, uh, Diane, there was another pretty big thing that we went to. Big house. Wow. That is full of some amazing stuff. It's just, you see the outside of it and what a huge home. I can't believe only three people live there to begin with. I know. It's crazy because it, it is the magnitude of that house is just phenomenal. And I don't even think, if I remember correctly from our episode, it's not even, it wasn't even their permanent residence. No. Stephen Pappas met us there as well as Michelle DePriest, and we knew they were going to be there. And then we were surprised with another listener being there, Beth Lale, who's a new listener. Yes. And it was a lot of fun just hanging out with the three of them at the Biltmore and then walking through the gardens and everything. What was really neat is that all three of them have been to the Biltmore before. So I didn't need to plug in the audio tour. I just went around with them and they would tell me different things. And then I did the drive-by look at the house and then Diane filled me in on all the details later. Because we had little... Tiana with us. So we couldn't both go through the house at the same time. But it was really phenomenal. Felt a little bit creepy in the swimming pool area where Stephen had said on the Biltmore episode that he had felt something. He felt a little weird there again. As we like to see, we are open-minded skeptics. So I don't know if it was because it's kind of claustrophobic in there. It's very stuffy. There's no windows. I felt a little weird in the head too. Who knows? But very interesting. Loved looking at all the refrigeration stuff they had down there, which was a bit ahead of its time. Definitely had the upstairs-downstairs feel of a Downton Abbey where the servants were Mm -hmm. downstairs. So that was neat. It was great to get to meet our three listeners. Then we dragged Stephen up to our campsite with us so we could set up camp before we met everybody for dinner. Yeah, he was like, how do you guys sleep in that? Because it looked like a little box until everything started kind of opening up. (laughs) He's like, oh, you got a fridge in there and all kinds of stuff. We're like, yeah, it's not not big, but it's big enough for us. So then we went and had dinner in Asheville. Again, we uh, got to meet uh, up with Tammy and her husband, Brian. Stephen was there. And then we also got to meet our new listener, Rachel. And I'm just going to say Z. Hey, Rachel Z. (laughs) She doesn't have enough vowels in her name for me to say it. I asked her how to say it. And I just, I don't think I can do it. And her boyfriend, Tyler, was there as well. So we had a great time meeting up with them. And then we went and did the Haunted Asheville tour. And our tour guide was named Brian. 
And I have to say, we've done a lot of ghost tours around the country. This tour, I felt, was the best we have ever been on. It was really, really good. Not only did it have a lot of great history, great haunts and great stories, but also he mixed some of his knowledge of science because he's a science teacher as well. And he, he mixed some of that in there as well. So it was a really, really well-rounded tour and very, very interesting. It was neat to have somebody who was a believer, but also a scientist. This is somebody who's done his own paranormal normal investigations. And I was talking with him a little bit before we started on the tour. Brian had asked Rachel because he had seen us take a picture together, but he knew we'd all checked in separately from each other who we were. And so she'd explained that they were podcast listeners and that Denise and I were the hosts of the podcast. And so he came over and was visiting with me a little bit. And he told me, he goes, oh, well, this tour started with Joshua P. Warren. And for those listeners who are paranormal buffs, you probably recognize the name. You've heard him on Darkness Radio, Coast to Coast, very well known, basically a paranormal normal celebrity out there. So I already was like, oh, cool. This is a tour that he basically had started and based on some of his information. But Brian is a huge history buff too. And that's what made it a plus. There are times when you can stop and talk about a place and tell the history, even if it's not haunted. And Brian did that many times on this trip. There are so many historic buildings in Asheville and such great, especially for uh, the black culture history there. It was just amazing. There was true crime he was talking about. So he would throw all these things in. The tour lasted, gosh, was it two and a half hours? I think so, because it was a total of about three and we spent maybe a half an hour in the museum. So We walked probably for two miles. I mean, we were just walking and walking, but I didn't notice because it was so interesting. And the other plus is we had about 32 people on that tour. And I think he thought it was a bigger group than he was expecting. He was mic'd up so that you could hear him and that he was able to project, even though his voice was pretty loud anyway. And the stories that he told were just, I was in awe the whole time just listening to it and the things that they've seen, the pictures that they've captured, his some of his explanations for why they thought things happened, some of the experiments that Joshua P. Warren has run to try to prove the afterlife, I guess you could say. And then, as Denise said, there was this little museum you could go through at the end, and that was just a lot of fun. He goes, it's kind of kitschy and dorky, but I, I really enjoyed it. He was very one-on-one walking around with me and showing me the different experimental equipment they've used. And just really, really cool. So if you are going to be in Asheville, it's hauntedashville.com. And I believe we did, was it the classic walking tour? I think classic it was yeah, classic, walking, tour classic walking tour, I think. They also have one that is more supernatural where they talk about vampires and witches and other things of that nature. And if you're a fan of Joshua P. Warren, you know he's really into that stuff. So that's probably why they have that as well. Highly recommend that. Yeah. And and he was just an amazing storyteller. I just was enthralled with everything that he had to say. And then we headed down to Jekyll Island and spent a night there. We went over to Driftwood Beach, which you have to see. It's just, it's creepy and cool at the same time. Yeah, very, very pretty. And then getting back to Wilmington, I had given them a review on Facebook and they did respond back to us. They have told us that we can come and take the tour again for free and that part of the problem that they had that evening is a university had bought a bunch of tickets and they had more people than they were expecting. So they pulled one of the regular tour guides from their regular tour cycle to put over there, which is why we were with such a big group. So I just want to let people know they did try to make restitution for it. 
if you have your regular clientele, you take care of them first before you take care of these special people. I would have said, you guys book too many. You're going to have to have larger groups and make sure that you take care of the people that are down here. Because kind of what happened here, and I told Denise this while we were driving, I said, I like that they've tried to make it up to us and to try to explain why it was such a large group and such. And they did say that they were going to have a meeting to try to figure out how they can make it so that they're not in such loud areas because it is just so loud down there. But unfortunately, what happened is this would be like if you were in a restaurant and you own the restaurant and you have something, let's say it's a crab special that you're going to have that evening, you run out of crab. So you think, well, we have some imitation crab here, so we're going to go ahead and throw some imitation crab in and maybe nobody will notice. Only problem is the person that you're feeding out in the dining room is a New York Times food critic and you've just served them the imitation crab. So unfortunately, they happen to have this happen when History Ghost Bump was on their tour. So maybe it's better than what we got got. We can only tell you what we experienced. So again, if you guys want to try doing it, if you're in the area, go for it. And if you have a better experience than we did, please let us know and we will pass that along. But for us, we did not think it was that great of a tour. So we kind of went from almost one of the worst tours we've been on to the best. So it was kind of cool to do that in the same trip, I guess. So great road trip. Our next one that we're planning for next year, we'll be going through Louisiana and into Texas and San Antonio. So for those of you who are in those areas, be prepared. We will be coming your direction. One of the emails that we got while we were gone was from a lady named Rebecca. And she said, Hey there, ladies. History Goes Bump is one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to you every day, even replaying episodes. So I get my daily dose. I love your format and audio is a lot better than most other podcasts. You both cracked me up with your banter and I feel like I'm hanging out with two girlfriends. I recommend you to all my other friends. Keep it up, ladies. I'd love to join you on a meetup. If you ever get out to Southern Arizona, Bisbee and Tombstone are less than 100 miles from where I live. We definitely want to get out west eventually. Yes, we do. We also got a message from Aharon. Listening to the two-year anniversary episode, Mazel Tov, one of my favorite podcasts. Don't ever miss your post. Very happy for all your success, and y'all keep getting better. Can't ever wait for the new one to come out. Anyway, on this episode, you had a story about a symphony that made people die, and you wanted to know if there was such a thing. There are actually two. The one is a song called Bloomy Sunday that after it was released, I believe that seven people had killed themselves, and mentions of the lyrics from the song were in their suicide notes. Then there is a symphony called The Mysterium by Alexander Scriabin, which, when supposedly played in all of its five parts, will bring about the end of the world. And then I just remembered about a third thing that's called the unsound. It's a sound that supposedly, if you hear it, you will die within a year. And then he just said he'd love to meet up with us sometime when we make it out to Baltimore. And I know, I think two years from now, we're going to try a trip up to Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Maryland, that area there. So we'll be expecting that maybe in 2018, something like that. Thanks for sharing that with us. Very interesting stuff. Now, we pre-recorded a couple of shows, so we have a lot of people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, so bear with us here. We want to welcome Monica. Hey, Monica. Holly. Hi, Holly. Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Nicole. Hey, Nicole. Kayan. Hey, Kayan. Richard. Hi, Richard. Sazoon. Hey, Sazoon. Brandy. Hi, Brandy. Misu. Hey, Misu. Badea. Hello, Badea. Darcy. Hey, Darcy. Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Tisha. Hey, Tisha. Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Carol. Hey, Carol. Chris. Hi, Chris. Charlotte. Hello, Charlotte. Tori. Hi, Tori. Sam. Hey, Sam. Beth, who joined us at the Biltmore. Hello, Beth, who joined us at the Biltmore. (laughs) Brittany. Hi, Brittany. Kristen. Hey, Kristen. And Kate, who spells her name K-A-I-T. And hey, Kate with an A-I-T. 
Hopefully we got everybody and didn't miss anybody. Welcome to all of you. Denise, are you ready to go to the Tower of London? Yes, I am. Here we go. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. This moment in oddity was suggested by Bob Sheerfield. Norwegian artist Morten Viscom is holding his first solo exhibition in the UK, November 18th to December 18th, 2016. Viscom is a unique artist and he sees himself as a performance artist. What makes Viscom unique is the tool he uses to create his artwork. He uses the hands of dead people. He doesn't think of the hands as just tools. He believes the hands are a link to an immortal personality. He owns several hands and each has its own style. He creates the artwork with spontaneous and vigorous sweeps and drips of paint. The paintings will be joined by another piece in this exhibition. The hand with the golden ring is a dead hand with a golden ring on its ring finger. Viscom won't reveal who this hand once belonged to, just as he won't reveal the former owners of any of his dead hands. Painting with dead hands certainly is odd. Welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> This Day in History On this day, October 4th, in 1957, the Soviet Union successfully launched the first satellite, Sputnik, into space. Sputnik was the world's first artificial satellite and measured about the same size as the average beach ball. This event would forever change the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States. Sputnik got its name from the Russian word for satellite. It circled Earth once every hour and 36 minutes. The satellite transmitted radio signals back to Earth as it traveled 18,000 miles an hour. Amateur radio operators could pick up the signal and Sputnik could be seen with binoculars at sunrise and sunset. All of this came to a halt in January of 1958 when Sputnik's orbit fell apart and the spacecraft burned up. The United States would launch its first satellite, Explorer, in January as well. The Soviets had already launched a dog into space, and they would continue to beat America in the space race until the U.S. landed astronauts on the surface of the moon in 1969. The History Goes Bump! 
पॉडकास्ट In London, located on the north bank of the River Thames, stands a tower that the mere mention of the name inspires feelings of dread and the macabre, and that is because the structure's thousand-year-old history is full of imprisonment, torture, and execution. Many famous names in history met their final demise at the Tower of London. The Great Tower was not always a prison. It served as a royal residence for a time, and it's officially known as Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London. Control of this piece of property usually signified control of the country, because so much mystery, intrigue, and death is associated with the structure. It is reputed to be quite haunted. Our infamous Lady in White is only one of the many spooks people claim to have seen or felt. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Tower of London. In September of 1066, William the Conqueror and his Normans were invading England. And as we've discussed in other episodes, the Normans built castles in areas that they conquered. The typical castle was built from wood in the Mott and Bailey style. As a refresher, these are the castles that had a keep built up on a tall dirt hill that was man-made, known as a mott, and then a fence-enclosed area was below the keep with various buildings. And this was called the Bailey. Originally, on the area where the Tower of London now stands, the Normans built one of their castles. William the Conqueror decided to build a more substantial structure from stone in 1078. He called it the Great Tower, and it would come to be known as the White Tower. It was completed in 1097. The tower would serve as a prison for the first time in 1100. The first prisoner was Ranulph Flambard, who was the Bishop of Durham. The name Flambard means torchbearer. He was the son of a priest. He helped compile the Doomsday Book we discussed with Alana in the Haunted Pluckley episode. He was imprisoned after the death of King Rufus, under whom he served. Rufus extorted many funds, and Flambard was arrested for that and thrown into the tower. He not only was the first prisoner, but he also became the first escapee. The tower would suffer its first siege in 1191. William Longchamp had become Bishop of Ely, and he served as regent to Richard the Lionheart when he left to conduct the Crusades. Prince John, who was Richard's brother, opposed the rule of Bishop Longchamp and attacked the tower. Longchamp had been ruling from there and had expanded the tower after seizing land. John drove Longchamp into exile. In 1210, King John took up residence in the tower. He ordered that a moat be dug outside the city of London's wall. The crown jewels had not been brought to the tower yet, and were kept at Westminster Abbey at this time. It is believed that King John lost the crown jewels to quicksand. King John has long been thought the worst monarch of England, and this debacle is only one reason: the loss of Normandy being a major reason why he is thought to be such a horrible ruler. Anyway, apparently John loaded the jewels and some of his belongings on a baggage train, which then got caught up in a tidal estuary somehow, and the jewels were sucked in by a whirlpool of quicksand. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't just throw the jewels in a bag and throw them on some horses. Probably not, especially those jewels. Well, I guess he got his when he died of dysentery shortly thereafter. King Henry the Third took over in 1216, and he reinforced the tower. The White Tower was heavily rebuilt at this time, and a new great hall was added along with kitchens. By 1236, ten new towers were added, as were drawbridges and gateways. The moat was extended and flooded with water from the River Thames. 
The Welsh prince Gruffid, and I remember Freya had tried to tell us how to say that, so I think it's Gruffid, was imprisoned in the tower from 1241 to 1244. He would attempt an escape in 1244 and fell to his death. King Edward I would become monarch and he would move the crown jewels to the Tower of London. So they went from Westminster Abbey to the Tower of London. And for those of you who are wondering, they did replace them. Cost a lot of money to replace them. King Edward II began his reign in 1307 and he used the tower as his point of authority. He had a bad relationship with the barons who would stage a rebellion against him in 1324 led by Roger Mortimer, the first Earl of March. One of the main reasons the barons disliked Edward was because of his relationship with Piers Gaveston, a man who joined his household and was given leadership and preferential treatment. The rumor was that the men were lovers. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> I wonder who was given preferential treatment. Gaveston was exiled for a while two separate times. I guess after spats, I don't know. <laughs> no, he wasn't. It wasn't the king who had him exiled. It was the barons who had him exiled. Oh, okay. Basically, this guy is maybe or maybe not King Edward's boyfriend, boy toy, whatever. And so he was kind of throwing his weight around and the barons didn't like it because uh. he wasn't royalty or anything. He's just this guy who comes into the castle and now we're supposed to do whatever he tells us to do. So they said, well, we're going to exile him. Gotcha. After returning from the second exile, Gaveston was executed by the barons. So the king said, I want him back because he missed him, I guess. And the baron said, well, then we'll just take care of this our way and cut off his head, I guess. Mortimer, who led the rebellion, was imprisoned at the tower. He escaped and fled to France with his lover, who just happened to be the queen, Edward II's wife. Well, I guess if he's playing around with somebody, she's <laughs> entitled to do the same thing. I guess so. <laughs> that would explain why he decided to do a rebellion against the king. Eventually, Mortimer was caught and hanged at Tyburn. As the 1300s moved into the years of the Black Death, the tower was further fortified with new towers and a gatehouse. Whitewash was added to the tower and it officially came to be known as Le Blanc Tour or the White Tower. The tower came under siege from peasants in 1381 under the rule of 14-year-old King Richard. The peasant leaders Watt Tyler and John Ball were killed. I'm telling you, when you're talking about the Tower of London, you're going through a list of monarchs for sure. So, And we're just doing brief little bits here. Obviously, there was a lot that happened in these different centuries, but we're hitting the highlight, basically. Yeah, it's sort of like the begats in the Bible, only all these begats end with execution or death or yeah, exile. exactly. King Henry VI ruled in the 1400s. He was literally nuts and a vile man who eventually ended up imprisoned in the tower with his wife, Margaret of Anjou, from 1465 until 1470. Now, a lot of these kings were just a tad bit nuts. Do you know the reason why, Denise? Probably because they were inbred. That would be it, yeah. He was restored to power for a time in 1470, and he then resided in the non-prison part of the tower. So I guess he decided he liked staying there, just not locked up there. He was murdered in the Wakefield Tower while he was praying. Most historians believe that Edward IV ordered the assassination. This ushered in the War of the Roses, which was a period of civil unrest and political instability. Edward IV was a bad guy himself. He liked the women and got many of them pregnant. There were claims of illegitimacy of his sons, and eventually the princes were murdered in the tower. The princes were 9 and 12 and under the care of their uncle, Richard III. He seized the throne in 1483, and the boys, they disappeared. 
Most historians believe that Richard murdered the boys to keep them from the throne, and it's believed he smothered them to death right there in the tower. That really takes something to kill a couple of little boys like that. It's disgusting. It is a murder mystery to this day because they don't know what happened. The bones of two small boys were unearthed on the grounds in 1674 by workmen, and it was in an area where they thought they might have been buried. So quite possibly they never figured out what killed them, but that seems to show that something happened there. King Henry VIII comes to power in the 1500s, and he decides to add gun emplacements on the roof of the White Tower, which had to be reinforced to take the weight. He also wanted to make sure that there was a song named after him. Really, Denise? Yeah, that's history. (laughs) So that song dates all the way back to the 1500s? It sure does. Gotcha. The rail lodgings were refurbished under him, and he added the onion-shaped domes on the turrets along with weather vanes. The tower would come to be known as the Bloody Tower under King Henry VIII. During this time, Henry would break from the church and declare himself the head of the Church of England so that he could divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn. Henry wanted a son that Catherine had not given him. The divorce happened in January 1533, and shortly thereafter, Anne was married to the king. Her coronation would come in May of that year, but the male heir would never come. In 1536, Anne was arrested on trumped-up charges of heresy, adultery, and treason. She was thrown into the tower to await execution. She was executed on Tower Hill. And for people who would like to know a little bit more about that, that is one of our Haunted True Crime bonus casts is on what I believe was the murder of Anne Boleyn, because I don't think she was guilty of anything that should have caused her to be executed. Exactly. I think he was just trying to get rid of her. One of the other charges was incest. They tried to claim that she had been sleeping with her brother and that some of the children that she had gotten pregnant with and had lost were really her brother's children. And it was just a bunch of baloney. Well, and if you look at the history of the Henrys, they don't have a great history. So who wants to believe, you know, any of them with everything that they already were doing. Well, and this is a guy who made up basically his own church and declared himself the head of it just so he could get a divorce. So, Henry VIII also imprisons Sir Thomas More and Bishop Fisher of Rochester in the tower, and they are executed because they refuse to acknowledge him as the head of the Church of England. Many people are arrested under his monarchy due to religious and political reasons. One of those more famous prisoners would be Thomas Cromwell, who's executed on Tower Hill in 1540. Here, Diane, it sounds like basically ego ran extremely wild. If you disagree with me, if you won't join me, if you won't think I'm the greatest, then I'll just kill you because I can. Well, and this is a guy who just kept killing off wives or divorcing them if he got tired of them or they weren't giving him what he wanted. So uh, apparently you could start your own religion if you just want to keep divorcing women. (laughs) The tower also had a torture dungeon, and Anne Askew was tortured here on the rack for heresy. She was an English poet and is the only woman on record that was tortured at the tower and then burned at the stake. She had to be carried on a chair to her execution because her body was destroyed by the torture. She was chained to the stake on a chair and burned slowly. Usually burning at the stake was done quickly. Occasionally they would strangle people before they would burn them to keep them from having any kind of pain. Not Anne. She died a slow, painful death. What was her heresy? She was a Protestant, and she would not give up the names of other Protestants. Henry VIII died in 1547, but his son Edward V would keep the blood flowing. Thomas Seymour is imprisoned in the tower and later beheaded on Tower Hill by Edward. The young king's protector and his men meet their end at the tower as well. Edward dies of tuberculosis, and Lady Jane Grey becomes queen. 
Her reign lasts for just nine days, and she is imprisoned and executed. Princess Elizabeth, Bishop Latimer, Bishop Ridley, and Archbishop Cranmer are all imprisoned in the tower, condemned to die for heresy, and burned at the stake in 1556. Queen Elizabeth I takes the throne, and the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, is executed on Tower Green by decapitation. He had been accused of plotting to overthrow and kill the Queen. It was more than likely a falsehood put forward by the Catholic Church because the Earl supported religious dissent. I'm telling you, the 1500s were a bloody time. That's why it got that name, the Bloody Tower. Oh, absolutely. The imprisonments and deaths would continue into the 1600s. In 1613, Sir Thomas Overbury, who was a poet and courtier, was poisoned in the tower by his political rivals. Sir Walter Raleigh was beheaded in Old Palace Yard in 1618 after being held in the tower. Raleigh was a soldier, poet, and explorer. A fun fact, he is also well known for popularizing tobacco in England. Before his beheading, he told the executioner, Let us dispatch. At this hour, my fever comes upon me. I would not have my enemies think I quaked from fear. He also added after inspecting the axe, This is a sharp medicine, but it is a physician for all diseases and miseries. He also yelled, Strike, man, strike, after he put his neck out for the axe. In 1625, Charles I becomes king, but Parliament rebelled and they take over the tower during the civil war that ensued from 1642 to 1649. A permanent garrison was installed at the tower during this time, and Charles was beheaded on a scaffold outside the banqueting house in Whitehall, London, in 1649. The late 1600s, the tower would be used less as a prison, but there were still deaths. In 1689, hanging Judge Jeffreys died in the tower. They called him the hanging judge because he had sentenced 320 to be executed or transported to the penal colonies. The tower lost its importance as a royal residence in the 1700s. The tower would have its only American prisoner in 1780. That was Henry Lawrence. He was the former president of the Continental Congress. Lawrence was imprisoned for treason. He'd been captured aboard the ship Mercury after negotiating with the Dutch to get support during the Revolutionary War. He had the evidence and dispatches that he had thrown overboard, but the British retrieved them. He was released in 1781 in exchange for the freedom of General Lord Cornwallis. And while we were in Wilmington, we got to see a house that he actually stayed in while part of the war was going on. The tower also had a section called the Lion Tower, and it held the Royal Menagerie. It left in 1834 to become the London Zoo. The Lion Tower was then demolished, but the Lion Gate still remains. In October of 1841, a sentinel noticed a fire break out near the Jewel office. The Grand Storehouse burned down and much of the armory was lost. The fire reached the clock tower as well, and there was fear that the crown jewels would be lost. A main issue that hampered the taming of the fire is that the tanks below the tower had very little water in them. The fire ended at 4 a.m. on Halloween of all days. The tower was repaired and later refortified during the 1848 revolution of the Chartist movement. The movement asserted the rights of ordinary people and the crown feared that a mob would attack the tower. A Victorian architect named Anthony Salvin was appointed in 1851 to restore the tower to a pseudo-medieval form. It was then open to the public. World War I brought more damage and death. A bomb fell into the moat of the tower. Eleven German spies were shot in the tower. World War II would bring even more damage to the tower and several buildings were destroyed. Corporal Joseph Jacobs, who was a German spy, was held at the tower and he was executed in 1941. Hitler's deputy Führer of Nazi Germany, Rudolf Hess, 
was imprisoned in the king's house for four days in 1942. And some of the last prisoners of the tower were the Cray twins in 1952 because they failed to report for national service. The tower then stopped serving as a place of imprisonment. Today, the Tower of London is a popular tourist spot and is managed by the charity Historic Royal Palaces. It is classified as a World Heritage Site under the charge of the Constable of the Tower. Tours of the Tower include visiting the Crown Jewels, an interactive exhibit of the Royal Mint, Yeoman Warder guided tours, and those are the Beefeaters, visiting the White Tower, visiting the Ravens, and exploring the history of the Tower as a fortress. We might have to go do that on our trip to London. The peculiar legend of the ravens in regards to the tower began during the reign of Charles II. He insisted that the ravens be protected because he believed that if the six ravens that lived there were to die or leave, then the castle would fall. And he believed that even the kingdom would fall. The royal astronomer John Flamsteed was not keen on this idea as he believed the ravens were in the way of his observance of the cosmos. But the ravens have always been protected. Today, there are seven ravens at the tower. One is referred to as a spare. (laughs) So you always have to have a spare raven, I guess. Exactly. They live in the Wakefield Tower and are fed 170 grams of raw meat a day and bird biscuits soaked in blood. That's disgusting. I'm telling you, it's like, uh, let's give the ravens raw meat and blood. I mean, I know that they are scavengers, but ew. With all the death and misery associated with the tower over 1,000 years, there's little doubt that it would be a breeding ground for spectral activity. The Tower of London is one of the most haunted locations in the UK, Denise. One of the most? One of the most. And actually, they probably can really make that claim. (laughs) I would think so. Many of the spirits seen and felt here are famous people in the history of England. They were tortured, imprisoned, and executed, usually for reasons that we would not consider punishable today. That means innocent blood was shed. Emotions soaked into the stones of the tower, as did blood. It seems to cry out from the past. Only seven people met their end via execution within the walls of the tower, but countless others were executed on Tower Hill just outside the Tower of London. Those seven people executed inside were all beheaded, explaining why so many ghosts here are seen minus their heads. So really, when you talk about all those executions, it's kind of amazing that only seven of them actually died within the walls. Five of the more famous people held and executed are reputed to haunt the property. The ghost of Lady Jane Grey is one of them. She was executed at the age of 16 after watching her husband's decapitated body being carried away. Her full-bodied apparition is seen on the anniversary of this event. The last recorded time she was seen was by two guardsmen on the 403rd anniversary of her death in 1957. Many people claim to have caught a glimpse of the ghost of Anne Bolin. She appears close to the site where she was executed. She likes to appear in the chapel as well and is usually leading a procession in a residual type of haunting. Her headless apparition has been seen walking the corridors of the tower. One guard even attempted to run her through with a bayonet when he saw her figure walking towards him with a bonnet on her shoulder that was empty, meaning the figure had no head. He was quite shaken. Uh, I'm glad to know that his response to such a thing was to try to stab the person. (laughs) Well, you know. The Countess of Salisbury was sentenced to death in 1541 for criminal activity. The Countess professed her innocence and ran from the butcher block. The executioner chased her down and hacked her to death with his axe. Can you imagine? That would have been horrific. It's just Not only for her, but to see it. 
This event is reenacted in a residual and gruesome way on the Tower Green. Those who witness it are greatly disturbed. I would think so. Both the ghosts of Henry VIII's wife, Catherine Howard, and her lady-in-waiting, Jane Rockford, are seen at the Tower. Catherine was executed for adultery, and Jane was executed for helping Catherine commit adultery. Jane had been driven insane by the torture she underwent as she was interrogated about the affair of Catherine. Henry VIII had a special law passed so that he could execute people deemed insane because he wanted Jane executed. It would seem the injustice done to these women within the walls of the tower has left them walking the corridors in the afterlife. It's just amazing sometimes when people talk about how violent and horrible our world is today. And I'm like, have you ever read any of the histories? All you have to do is look into the past and go, we're actually pretty civil nowadays, even as bad as it can get. I know these things are just horrid. And this is legalized stuff. There are those who were murdered in the tower and their ghosts are reportedly seen. These include Thomas Beckett, King Henry VI, and the two little princes in the tower. Beckett was one of the first ghosts seen in the tower. He had been very unhappy about the construction of the inner curtain wall. He makes appearances on two consecutive St. George days, and both times he touched the wall with his cross and the wall was reduced to rubble. The chapel was built in the tower to appease Beckett, and it was said that he must have been pleased because he did not disrupt any more construction. Arbella Stewart married the nephew of Lady Jane Grey without the permission of King James I. Arbella was put under house arrest, and her husband was imprisoned at the tower for this infraction. She plotted to help her husband escape, but her husband never made it to their rendezvous point. She was captured and sent to the tower. She was murdered in the castle in 1615 in the Queen's house. Her ghost is seen there at that location. The tower also has its lady in white, and there's the Grey Lady as well. The Lady in White has been seen standing at a window of the foreboding White Tower waving to little children in the buildings on the opposite side. There's also the scent of her cheap perfume near the entrance to St. John's Chapel on occasion. How do they know the perfume is cheap? I don't know. Stuck (laughs) up people. It might be very expensive. Who knows? The Great Lady is described as a woman who is wearing mourning clothes, but no one can see if she's crying because her face is a black void. A garrison of ghost soldiers is seen occasionally marching on the grounds. The rattling of chains and disembodied groans are heard in the corridors. Smoky apparitions are seen amongst the battlements. Spectral animals from the former royal menagerie have been seen and sometimes animal sounds are heard. The salt tower has what seems to be an evil presence inside of it. Dogs refuse to enter. So basically that whole list there shows you that every possible location, building, outside area has ghosts connected to it in some way. Henry VIII's armor is on display in the gallery and many security guards are reluctant to go in the room because of a crushing sensation they feel in there sometimes. The horrible feeling leaves them when they exit the gallery. One stormy night, a guard was patrolling through the room when he claimed to feel as though someone had thrown a heavy cloak over him. He struggled to free himself from the unseen garment only to feel it close around him tighter. It tightened around his throat. He managed to break free and run to the guard room where he showed the other guards the marks on his neck. Henry VI haunts the area near the clock tower and he usually appears around midnight. His specter is reported to appear to be quite sad. Sir Walter Raleigh haunts the Queen's house near to where he was being held as a prisoner. According to legend, he has been seen looking exactly as he does in his portrait hanging in the bloody tower where he was kept. The ghosts of the missing and more than likely murdered princes have been seen as spirits wearing nightgowns clutching each other in terror in the rooms of the castle. 
They are also heard throughout the tower playing, running, and giggling, particularly around the battlements. Lily Power reported on the Tudor book blog, Me and my sister have heard the children's laughter that is supposed to be of the princess. A few years ago, I was visiting the tower. There was only me and a random guy reading the plaque, and my sister was standing just behind me waiting to read it. There were no children at all. I don't really trust my ears, so I didn't believe it until a couple of minutes went by, and I asked my sister if she had heard that, and she said yes. I asked one of the staff at the tower if they had any motion-detected sound effects like I'd heard at the waxworks at the Isle of Wight, and told her why. She looked very nervous and said, no. The stories of hauntings at the tower are numerous. Many of them seem to be residual in nature, as though the emotions and energy of that past time have been caught in the space. Do these people who were imprisoned and executed here still walk the corridors? Is the Tower of London haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, definitely look forward to visiting that location in the future sometime. And there's a lot of spectral activity going on there. Yes, there is. So we'll see how far I get through the tower when we visit (laughs) before I run. Our next episode is going to feature the ghosts of the 1871 Infernos. So we'll be talking about those fires and the ghosts that have developed because of that. Before we let you guys go, we want to share some reviews that we got while we were gone. We'll share the four stars first. First one is from Knott's Lanning. Most enjoyable four stars. I learned about this podcast through Bizarre States and I'm glad I took their advice. I'm a history buff and love to be scared by ghost stories. Thanks so much for that. And then we have Casual Customer. Mostly good. Four stars. As many other reviews say, there's definitely too much chit-chat, reading reviews, etc. The audio quality could be better. The transition from music to voice often just drop instead of fading. And I do get tired of having so many breaks from people saying, you're listening to HGB. Only about two-thirds of each show is actual content, but I do enjoy the content very much. Then we have a couple of five-star reviews. The first one is from Jeeves64. Chillingly interesting five stars. Hi, ladies. Just recently started listening in on a recommendation by Tanner over at Legends Miss and Whiskey. Your podcasts are perfect on my 25-minute commute to work. I had to write in after the Ghost Lights episode when I heard my town of Saratoga Springs, New York mentioned. I lived on a horse farm just a few minutes away from the famous Revolutionary War battlefield. We are in the midst of the 239th anniversary of the battle that happened in 1777, and it's worth a mention in your podcast. Like any major battlefield, there are many stories of ghostly sights and sounds that echo those battles of late September and early October, and it seemed like a good time to bring it up since I heard our town name come up. Keep up the good work, ladies. Interesting. Very interesting. And then our final five-star review... T. McCool, podcast listener, five stars. I started listening to your podcast spring summer. I'm a fan of horror movies, so I searched for ghost stories and your podcast came up on the list. I thought it looked interesting, even though the first couple of episodes were rough. I enjoyed the content. I drive an hour to and from work. This podcast keeps things interesting. I've not gotten through all podcasts, but will eventually. I do enjoy the podcast. One question. Is there a list on y'all's website of podcasts that y'all suggest? I know you mentioned them during your podcast, but every time I try to remember, I always forget. Don't really have a list there. We do have one over on the forum that we really don't. There's not a lot of activity there. So we pretty much just stick to the Spooktacular crew. The Lyft, Legends, Miss and Whiskey, Bizarre States, Entwined, Podcateers, Campfire by Jim Harold, The Big Seance, Audio Dime Museum, Case File if you like true crime, Darkness Radio, Generation Y, The Haunted Estate, Insight, Just a Story, Most Notorious, The Most Wonderful Wonder, 
Myths and Legends, the No Sleep Podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class, Sword and Scale, The Curioso, True Murder, True Crime Garage, The Unexplained, The Vanished Podcast. I guess that's just a few. So hopefully that catches all that. All right. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. This has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank for their one-time donations, Rick Kennett and Brittany Vocown. Hope I said that right. And we want to welcome new executive producers, Renee Cochran, Ingrid Frazee, Rose Devereaux, Cindy Pierce, Katrina Scott, Beth Lale, Michelle DePriest, and Janelle Aker. Thank you so much for joining us as executive producers. We greatly appreciate that. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.